All right, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. If you don't have one with you, there should be one in the rack in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd, we'd love for you to take that and, and make it your own. Put your name in it and become familiar with God's Word. Our series is titled Future or Fairy Tale, What the Bible Teaches About the Afterlife. And the book of 1 Thessalonians has a lot to say about that. Uh, that's why we're going to be looking at it frequently throughout our series. It is the first of two letters written by the Apostle Paul to a church, a group of Jesus followers, just much like this church, uh, in a town called Thessalonica. That's where the, the name comes from. And in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is reminding these people, he's reminding his readers of what happened when he first came into town, he and his co-workers, and shared the good news of Jesus with them. It was a powerful, powerful experience. Um, as, as Paul and his co-workers shared the message of Christ, who he is and what he had done, the Spirit of God used that time, used that sharing of the good news to draw people into a life-changing relationship with himself. So let's read about what God did. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How did he know that? He says, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. Became deeply convinced that the message was true. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, Jesus. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That was the surrounding regions. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. What really stands out here, at least to me, is how confident Paul is that their faith in Jesus is real. It's authentic. It, there's nothing phony about it. Because Paul had seen with his own eyes evidence that God was really at work in them, 
in their, in their lives. He saw, he saw how they welcomed the message of Jesus with, with, uh, with joy, how they became convinced that the message was true. They responded with joy in, in spite of very difficult circumstances. They were getting a lot of heat from the surrounding community, but they responded with joy. And then they began to make big changes in their lives. Big changes. It says they, they turned away from the false gods they had been worshiping, and they gave themselves to the true and living God. It was a powerful experience. And you could only explain it one way. The only adequate explanation was that the Holy Spirit of God was at work transforming their lives. God was doing it. It was obviously real. In fact, it was so obvious, other people were paying attention. They were noticing. Uh, the communities around them, uh, the people were seeing. The, the, these Thessalonians, they were be, they'd become part of this, this Jesus thing, this, this Christian thing that was beginning to spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. And other Christians were looking to the Thessalonians as, as an example of what genuine faith in Jesus looked like. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want it to be obvious that I belong to Jesus. Years ago, I heard somebody ask this question. They said, if it were illegal to be a Christian, if it were illegal to 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 be a follower of Jesus, and you were arrested, somebody accused you of being a Christian, and you were arrested and put on trial, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you know Jesus today, don't you want it to be obvious? Don't you want it to be obvious that you belong to him, that he is in you, and he is changing you? And if you feel like today it, it, it's not as obvious as it should be, don't you want it to change? Don't you want it to become more obvious? What, what would make it more obvious that you belong to Christ? Well, there's a very important answer to that question right here. In, in verses 9 and 10, and, and this answer is very relevant to our series. Right after Paul says to them, you turned to God from idols. Okay, so he's talking about when they crossed the line from, from not believing in Jesus to believing in Jesus. When they crossed the line, became believers in Christ, that brought about two very significant changes. Two significant results. In other words, there's two things that happened, at least these two things that happened, because their faith in Jesus was real. It was genuine. And what were these? These two results, these two changes. Last part of verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's one. And the other, verse 10, 
and to wait for his son from heaven. These two changes, these two results were evidence that their faith in Jesus was genuine and it was healthy. And the same is going to be true of us today. If we truly belong to Christ, if we really trust him, we've put our faith in him, our hope in him, and, and we, we value him and we believe in him and we follow him, then our lives are going to be marked by these two things, serving God and waiting for his son. To return. Now, what I want to do is I want to unpack those two things so that we can understand what, what that means, what they mean, and why, why they are evidence of a genuine faith relationship with Jesus. But before I begin to do that, I want to avoid a potential misunderstanding, and because I know some of you are prone to all or nothing thinking. Some of us are just like that. It's, it's all or nothing. And so you might, you might have just heard what I said and you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I'm out because I, I don't always serve God. I don't always serve him the way I should. And I don't always think about Jesus coming back. There's days where I go and I don't even think about that. And, and I don't look forward to that. And so my faith must not be real. That's it. I'm fake. It could mean that. It could mean that. I mean, if you really don't care about serving God, and if you don't care about Jesus coming back, it could mean that your faith is phony. And that's one reason why we need to really explore these truths and, and see where our hearts are and ask God to show us where our hearts are at. And if you're here this morning and you become convinced that, you know, you've been faking it, your faith isn't real, that would be a very gracious thing for God to do in your life so you could say, wow, I, I need Jesus I need a real relationship with him. So it could mean that your faith is phony. Or it could mean something else. It could mean that your faith is imperfect and needs to grow. Think about it. Even these Thessalonians, these model Christians, they did not serve God perfectly, and they did not wait for Jesus perfectly. How do I know that? Because Paul had to write them a letter. Okay? If they'd been doing it perfectly, this book wouldn't even be in our Bibles. So Paul is writing, one of the big reasons he's writing is to correct them, to correct some of their mistakes. So their faith was real. It was genuine. But it was imperfect. And it needed to grow. And that's going to be true of anybody that's got a genuine faith in Jesus. Your faith needs to grow. But here's the thing. Even an imperfect faith in Jesus will be marked by these two things at least 
to some degree. And you're going to be growing in these two things. So if these two things are completely absent from your life and you are indifferent, that's a problem. That's a problem. So let's look. So these two results, two results of a real faith in Christ. The first is serving God. Serving God. Which means you acknowledge him as your gracious Lord and you live to please him. You acknowledge him, you acknowledge him, you recognize him as your gracious Lord, your master, the one who's in charge, and you live to please him, serving God. As singer-songwriter Bob Dylan put it, you're going to have to serve somebody. You just are. We all serve somebody or something, no matter how free and independent we think we are. And as Americans, we're really into being free and independent. But the thing is, you're serving somebody. You are. Uh, there is someone there or something to which you give your ultimate loyalty. There is someone or something which has ultimate value to you. There is someone or something that you worship. There is someone or something which makes life worth living for you. And whatever that is, that's what you serve. Now, before, before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that someone or something that we serve is not the true and living God. And so a big part of coming to faith in Christ is realizing that that's got to change. That's got to change. The, the someone or something that we serve can only be the true and living God. Anything else that we try to serve in that ultimate sense, well, it's a fake God. It's an idol. And it's not worthy of your devotion. And it's always going to mess up your life. There's a problem with an idol. It doesn't love you back. Not the way you need to be loved. It's a fake God. It's not real. But then you come to Christ. You come to Christ and you realize this God is the real God. This God made me. This God knows me. This God loves me. This God is worthy of my complete devotion and service. Now, now, what happens to make that allegiance switch? Why, why do we switch our allegiance to him? Well, because he's God. You know, like, duh. <laughs> he's God. He has all authority. He has all power. He has the right to rule your life and my life. And that's all true. But 
It's more than that. It's much more than that. It's also because he's good. It's good. We just sang that. You are good. You are good. That is critical. That, that's what I mean by, you know, in my statement here, you acknowledge him as your gracious Lord. Okay, here's why this is so important. Okay, listen carefully. If you don't know that God is gracious, you will never serve him. At least not the way he wants you to. If you don't know, if you don't believe that God is gracious, if you don't believe that he is good, you will not serve him. Not the way he wants you to. Let me elaborate on that a bit. Do you know what the most frequently quoted statement about God is in in all of the Bible? Do you know this? It comes from the account of when when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and was um, meeting with God and God was revealing to Moses his Torah, his, his instruction for the people of Israel. And, and as Moses is here in, in God's presence, he just is overwhelmed with a sense of awe as, at all that he is learning about who God is. And he just says, he cries out, show me your glory. He wants to see a glimpse of just who this God is, his glory. He wants to see that, and God answers him. And God gives him a glimpse of his glory, of his goodness. And, and this is how he answers him. Exodus 34, 6, God says, Yahweh, the Lord. That's, that's God's name of relationship that he has revealed. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is so significant. Because, see, this is God describing himself. This is not somebody else trying to figure out what God is like. This is God revealing disclosing his very nature. And when he does this, as he unveils his character, who he is, what he is like, the first words out of his mouth, so to speak, are merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that description gets picked up by the later writers of Scripture again and again and again. This is God. This is who He is. This is His heart. This is His nature. And you have to know that. You have to know that about God to serve Him correctly. God doesn't need your service. He doesn't need my service as if somehow he can't achieve his plans without us. He's not asking us for our help. He is offering to give us the grace and mercy we need. 
And we, serving him is what we need. It's what we need. We need to reorient our whole lives around him, around his purposes, his priorities, his ways. And he calls us to do that because he's gracious. He's gracious because it's good for us. That's what we were made for. It is in our own best interest to be God-centered in everything. Instead of centering our lives about, around someone else or something else that we stupidly value more than we value Him. It's insane. It is. Think about it this way. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? If you're familiar with that, what did he say? What's, what's the key word? You shall love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, with all that you are, love God. Okay, think about it. No one loves a selfish tyrant. Nobody. You think of some tyrant in the world today, lording it over his people, you could describe that relationship between those poor people and the tyrant who is brutally ruling over them. You could describe that in many ways, but the one word you would never use is love. God is no tyrant. He is not demanding your service at your expense, at your hurt, at your detriment. No, he tells you to serve him. He wants you to serve him because you love him, because you understand that he is good, that he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's because you trust him, because you know he will always rule over your life for your good. When we fail to serve God, when we fail to serve God, when we fail to obey God, it's always for this reason. We fail to believe that he has our best interests at heart. That's why we do it. That's why we fail. We fail to serve him because we fail to believe he's got our best interests at heart. And we think we know better. <laughs> it's so ludicrous when you say it, but we do it. We think, oh, I know better how to be happy here. Uh, at least in this part of my life, I've got a better plan than God does. It's insane. It's always a lie. So a real faith in Jesus includes this realization that God alone has the right, God alone has the wisdom, God alone has the goodness to lead your whole life. And so you resolve to serve him with your whole life and more and more as you realize more and more what that means. You grow. You grow in serving him if your faith is real. You want to please him. And when you don't please him or you don't want to please him, you realize it's wrong. It's stupid. And you repent. And then you grow in serving him and you fail and you repent. And you do it again and again and you grow in serving him. Real faith... Real faith in Christ results in serving God. And second, it results in waiting for Jesus. 
waiting for Jesus, which means this, you hope in his promises, you hope in his promises, and you long for his presence. You put your hope in his promises, and you long for his presence. That's waiting for him. So let me just ask you, what are you looking forward to? Lunch? I am. Payday? Looking forward to payday? Looking forward, if you're a student, to graduation? Looking forward to warmer weather? Isn't it glorious? Looking forward, if you're single, you're looking forward to marriage? You're looking forward to having children? If you've got children, you're looking forward to grandchildren? You're looking forward to retirement? Those things are all good. They're all good. But they're not good enough. They're not good enough. For one thing, they're not certain enough. Every one of those things I just mentioned, there's no certainty, there's no guarantee that any of them will happen. Not even lunch. (laughs) They're not certain enough. They're not big enough. They're not big enough to build all your hopes on. And they're not, they're not enduring enough. They're not enough to sustain you through life's hardest times. What gives you hope? What will give you hope when life is really terrible? What will give you hope? What will sustain you when the world goes completely nuts? What will sustain you? What will give you hope when the other things that you're looking forward to don't happen? Or when someone you really love is taken from you, something really important to you is no longer there. What's going to sustain you? What's going to give you hope? There's only one. Only one adequate, only one satisfying answer. So follow this. Just as true faith in Jesus switches our ultimate allegiance from some other lesser Lord to the true and living God, so also true faith in Jesus switches your ultimate hope from lesser hopes to this. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully, ultimately, completely, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is revealed when he returns. When he is revealed and we experience his gracious presence and he fulfills all of his promises, then and only then will all of your griefs and disappointments and suffering be transformed into eternal satisfaction. 
then and only then. So look forward to that. Anticipate that. Set your hope fully on that. You set your hope on anything less than that, it will fail you sooner or later. Set your hope fully on Him. Okay, don't miss this. Notice how personal this hope is. This is so important. Okay, this is so important, especially in our circles where we're really big on truth and getting the truth right and knowing the truth. Being a Christian is never simply believing a list of beliefs. Being a Christian is never simply agreeing with a bunch of facts about who Jesus is, about who God is, about what makes a person right with God. Isn't it, are those truths important? Absolutely. Should we believe them? Absolutely. But it's not enough. Being a Christian is never simply that. It must be a relationship. It must be a relationship. Paul says to wait for his son, God's son. Wait for him. We're not waiting mainly for an event. And yeah, there are significant events that are connected with his coming, and we want to know about them, and we want to look forward to them. But the events are not the main thing we're waiting for. In fact, the main thing we're waiting for isn't a thing. It's a person. This is so important. This is so important. I have known people who get so preoccupied with the events, and they're all about trying to figure out the events. And when the events happen, and getting the sequence right, does this happen before this happened? And, and when does that happen? And getting all the events figured out. You know, the correct sequence that the Bible, you know, is talking about. And there is a place for that. But don't ever, ever, ever forget that what we're really waiting for is Christ. Person. It is Jesus who will fulfill our hopes. It is Jesus who will heal our hurts. It is Jesus who will transform our world. Chapter 4, four verse 16 of the same book. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. John 14, 3. Jesus said, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, that where I am, you may be also. And if you read that, you immediately go, well, where is that? Where, 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 where? Is that on earth? Is that in heaven? Where? Don't miss the point. I will come. I will take you to be to myself so that where I am, you may be. It's personal. That's our hope. That's our hope. Have you ever gone to the airport to meet, to meet someone that you really love that you haven't seen in a while? Have you had that experience? Someone who's really important to you, someone you just can't wait to be with them and to talk to them and get caught up with them and to see their smile and to laugh with them and to hug them? Have you had that experience? And as you're there and that crowd of people is coming toward you, what are you doing? You're looking for that one face. You're looking for that one smile. 
you're looking for those eyes that you know are looking for you. That's the kind of waiting this is talking about. Anticipation. Eagerness. Yearning. Real faith in Jesus creates this kind of waiting for Him. Now, it can be really hard to remember sometimes. Especially when you're younger, I remember like somebody would teach on Jesus coming again. It's like, oh, Lord, I know I should want that more than anything, but I sure want to get married. And I sure want to do all these other things. And, you know, it can be hard to remember. And even when you're older, and the world can be so distracting, and, you know, this looks awfully exciting, and that looks awfully exciting... But the more you get to know him, the more you get to know him, the more you want him to come. The more you want him to come and fulfill his promises, the more you want to be with him. So, a real faith and relationship with Jesus will produce these two things, serving God and waiting for Jesus. Or let me put it another way. Let me say it another way. If you really know him, If you really know him, then more and more you're going to want to serve him and more and more you're going to want to see him. If you know him, you're going to want to serve him more and more and you're going to want to see him more and more. Now, here's the thing I really want you to see. It took me all this time to get to this point. Those two things are intertwined. They are interconnected. They strengthen and reinforce each other. Waiting for Jesus affects how you serve him. It motivates you to be faithful. It motivates you to keep at it. It gives you a sense of urgency because he's coming. And maybe most important of all, it will enable you to keep serving him when it's really hard. When it's really hard to love people because they're not getting it and they're driving me crazy and they're hurting me and you're trying to serve and then you remember he's coming. He's coming and he's going to make it worth it. It enables you to endure and keep serving because you know he's coming. You serve with hope because you're looking forward to the joy ahead of you. You're not just looking at the hardships all around you. And that will sustain you when it feels overwhelming. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says this, he's talking about his own problems. And he says this slight momentary affliction. Go back and read that. That's in 2 Corinthians. Look at it later today. Look at what he describes as slight momentary affliction. It's things like being shipwrecked. It's like being stoned, but I'm talking about having big rocks thrown at you. (laughs) Having people try to kill you again and again. And he looks at all that and he says, ah, slight momentary affliction compared to this. That's preparing an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. Yeah, this hurts, but compared to that, I can keep at it. Eternal weight of glory coming. So, the, on the other hand, serving him is what you do when you're waiting for him. Say, yeah, I'm waiting for Jesus, so I'm not doing anything. That makes no sense. Makes no sense. If you long for him to come, if you long to see his smile, if you long for other people to see his smile, then you will feel compelled to serve him. Like that story Jesus told about the master who was going on a journey, and so he gave his servants each some money and said, okay, make good use of this while I'm gone. You will serve your master faithfully if you know he's coming and you're going to give an account to him and what you want to hear, what you long to hear is this. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been Faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Or as another translation puts it, come share your master's happiness. I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. I get to stand up here and declare these things and I think I, I need this more. I need to serve you more. I need to long for your coming more and I want it to be obvious that I belong to you and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they will have that same longing and you will, you will fulfill it. You will help us serve you faithfully. You will help us have that hope that will sustain us and strengthen us and give us joy and motivate us that hope that Jesus is coming and he will make it worth it. Help us, Lord. Sustain those who are hurting. And Lord, if there is anybody today who now feels exposed that, that their faith is fake, Lord, may they cry out to you to make it real. Will you do that work? You're the one who did it in the Thessalonians. You, can do, you will do it in our lives. Give us the faith to come to you and ask you to do your great work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.